I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. What do we do when the labels we're given aren't necessarily the ones we choose for ourselves? Labels like chronic illness, or caregiver, or widow, or mom of a kid with special needs. What do you do when life doesn't fit into neat categories? My life doesn't exactly fit into neat categories anymore. I was healthy, and then I was sick, and now I'm feeling pretty good. And even though the language around immunotherapy isn't perfect, I can happily say that I am in remission. But I asked the doctor what the right term for me might be, and he said, survivor in progress, which was super annoying. So today's conversation is about developing language to move us forward when life is, well, chronic. Today, I'm speaking with New York Times bestselling author Kelly Corrigan. She has been called the voice of her generation and the poet laureate of the ordinary. And she is the most perfect person to talk to to kick us off because her lovely new book is called Tell Me More. And tell me more is one of those phrases she uses, phrases that she writes about that help guide her through relationships and parenting and grief. Today, I get a chance to talk to Kelly about some of her very best phrases. Phrases like, I don't know, I was wrong, and one of my favorites, it's like this. It's going to be great. Kelly has also agreed to be my friend as part of her contractual commitment to this podcast. So Kelly, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, your book has such a wonderful collection of phrases around essays, stuff like, tell me more. And you write about incredible things people can say when they're figuring out the road ahead. Mm -hmm. You wrote this book in a season of incredible loss. I'm sorry to ask about the hard part, but would you mind telling me what happened? So my dad died in February. And then my friend Liz, who's the mother of three kids, eight, 10, and 12 at the time, died that December. She had ovarian cancer, so she fought it for seven years. And it was the kind of thing where I felt like I urgently wanted to deserve my life. Mm. You know, like it wasn't me. Yeah. I didn't die. I'm going to, I mean, so far, knock on wood, I'm getting to see my kids be much, much older than she got to see her kids be. Yeah. And I'm getting to, to, to walk with them way longer on their road. And I felt this sense that I could never possibly deserve that, that I am not that great a person or a mom. Like I'm just, I, you know, I'm just an ordinary person and I make all the mistakes that everybody else makes and maybe even 10% more. And then there she was and, and what she would have done yeah. for the life that I was kind of rushing through, multitasking my way through day after day and, you know, sort of feeling snappish and and then catching myself and feeling like I should be different. Right. Like for, for what I've just yeah. seen in the yeah. last six months, I should be different. Yeah. I, I should not be mad about this. Yeah. And I should not lose my mind over a shirt I bought on final sales section that didn't fit. And yeah. uh, even though I like tried to 
pull it over myself and then it got stuck on me and I had to cut it off with scissors. I got to like make it into a vest to remove it from my body with the tag still on it. You know, so I just really went bananas. Yeah. Because on top of the shirt problem, I went downstairs to clean the kitchen and I found, you know, everybody's bowls and spoons and cups and and I had that reaction that so many women have, which is like, well, I guess I'm the least busy. I guess yeah. I guess everybody here, these children of mine and my husband are just too damn busy to get on this, but I'm not, so yeah. I'll do it. I'll do cool. And then I was finishing, and I found a little pile of cut toenails <laughs> on my kitchen table. And that... Yeah, the indignity. Yeah. Thanks. That's the word. And then, you know, right on the heels of that, I think, what would Liz do for this? She'd yeah. do anything. She'd do dishes all day yeah. in, and into the night. Yeah. To just get to listen to her children, just to get to watch them through a, a one-way glass. Like, you know, so that's just the question in front of all of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do we earn it? Wow. And that's a big word. I think earn is such a good word because you're talking about such a complicated math I, I mean, I remember <laughs> thinking, I mean, when I wasn't sure, when I was in a, an especially tough moment of illness, every time I would look at Zach's nails, I would think, is, mm. is this what would have happened if I, hadn't, if I hadn't been here to do this? Is this how you would have mm-hmm. cared for my son? And like you, you mm-hmm. end up fixating on all these tiny little things and at the same time so overwhelmed by not being sure if it's trivial or tragic. Well, you know, sometimes the trivial is tragic. Like my mom called me, you know, maybe three months after my dad died. She lives in Philly and I live in California. And she said, uh, Kelly, I'm going to try to do the Uber to this wedding. And I was wondering if you can request a woman. And I said, no, you can't. But, you know, you can trust it. Like, don't worry. And she said, well, My problem is I can't zip my dress by myself. So I thought if it was a woman, I could ask her to come in and zip my dress. And I thought that's the the tiny moments that are so gut-wrenching for a new widow is, you know. Yeah. She can't wear like half her clothes because she can't zip them by herself. Yeah. Who's going to do this? So she had to call someone and ask him to come over and zip her dress so she could go to the wedding. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's where it is. That's where it's at. Like, that's where a relationship lives is in these tiny moments. And whether you are cognizant of that and tuned into that channel all the time or not, that is the story of a relationship. It's like these seemingly trivial moments. Like, there's a a thing I'm aware of about eye contact Mm -hmm. between spouses. And you either make it or you don't. And once you're aware that that's deeply meaningful. Yeah. And that it has this kind of almost a measurable yeah. physiological effect on the other person. Yeah. Then you make an effort to look them in the eye. Mm-hmm. And that seems like such a small thing, but it's actually definitional in mm-hmm. terms of your relationship, mm-hmm. in terms of whether it's a good day or a bad day or a good interaction or a bad interaction. We're just a series of days and interactions. It's all this like cumulative effect of a thousand minuscule moments. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really right to me. I mean, that was my big experience of your book. You're giving these beautiful phrases, and each of them feels like a kind of roadmap. And you start with one that really resonated deeply with me. You start with, it's like this. 
So my husband worked at a startup in San Francisco, which is called Medium, and it's a writing platform. And as a writer, I was welcome to come and use their office space. And it's like everything you think a San Francisco startup is. Like <laughs> there's, you know, meatless Mondays, and <laughs> there's a kombucha bar, and there's <laughs> nap pods. <laughs> So I used to go in there and write, and they have meditation teacher twice a day, wow. you know, like at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And at first I was, you know, sort of sheepish about availing myself of every single employee benefit. But <laughs> sure enough, uh, eventually I found myself sitting in there, and this guy was kind of amazing. He's just one of those people that you think, like, God, if I could get five minutes with him, I just tell him my biggest problem, and he'd just, like, say something in seven words that would solve everything. <laughs> yeah. So eventually I went up to him and I said, you know, I'm caught between these two worlds, this world where I'm full of clarity and insight and gratitude. Yeah. And I'm seeing like all the big, the big colors of the world. You know, I'm hearing all the music. Mm. I'm totally tuned in to the right channel. Yeah. And then like, just like that, I slip into this mundane irritants. Yeah. And then I catch myself and then I feel this sense of shame. And he said, it's like this. And I, I mean, maybe I was projecting maybe whatever he said in that moment. I mean, maybe if he had said peanut butter and jelly, we'd be talking about peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> but but it, it totally resonated for me yeah. in the way that like a song lyric does yeah. where you're like, I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm going to write that down and put it in my wallet. And it's interesting. I'll, I'll read you a little bit from the very end of that chapter because the thing that he was saying, I think, is like, this is how it goes. Yeah. So I, I say at the end of this chapter, shouldn't loss change a person for the better, forever? Maybe Will's curious phrase, it's like this, applies here too. This forgetting, this slide into smallness, this irritability and shame, this disorienting grief, it's like this. Minds don't rest. They reel and wander and fixate and roll back and reconsider because it's like this, having a mind. Hearts don't idle. They swell and constrict and break and forgive and behold because it's like this, having a heart. Lives don't last. They thrill and confound and circle and overflow and disappear because it's like this, having a life. Yeah. Oh, friend. When I read that, I just kept thinking of how scared I've been about what I call being a zombie. Like mm. the idea that we just sort of wander around, consume things until we die. Like we're just a series of mm -hmm. small appetites, you know, without oh. any mm -hmm. deep, rich, meaningful, satisfying connection. And, you know, it was so weird, but like dying was the easier part of it. Getting back mm. to life has been really tricky. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I really appreciated the way that you frame the bigness and the smallness of it because it, mm -hmm. it has to be both. You can't only experience deep gratitude at the toenails that you seriously <laughs> wish someone else would have cut because seriously, who's doing this around here? Yeah, and there's like forgiveness and acceptance kind of intertwined there that, you know, you're going to forget. Yeah. You're going to slide around. Yeah. You know, you're going to deserve your life a little more some days than others. Like, it doesn't end. I love that. Scene. And also, kind of like, you can't live there. You can't live in that. Yeah. I mean, unless you're a monk and yeah. you're, you know, meditating for 60 days in a mountain somewhere. Yeah. 
you can't be in the world and get through your to-do list and also yeah sit in endless rich gratitude (laughs) well I think part of it I mean and this gets to another phrase that you write about which is I don't know but Mm. you and I it sounds like have given up on certainties as a way to cope with that both having been through cancer and also I think both realizing that people really don't like it when you say I don't know they hate it I hate it. Yeah. I think people think that if you have like a diagnosis or something's happened to you, that you you should know because you're proof of it. Like the other day when I was being uh, wheeled into a procedure, the nurse Mm -hmm. looked at my chart and then casually said, colon cancer? Uh, Yeah. I mean, people are getting colon cancer at your age all the time. It's probably because of something you've been eating. Oh, thank you (laughs) for that (laughs) bit of suggestion. Uh, I do think people offer certainties when they think that you're proof of something that scares them. And they can't just like live in the uncertainty of not knowing for a minute. Yeah, I'm so compassionate to that thing that happens every time you tell someone that you had cancer, Mm. which is the other person trying to figure out why it's not going to happen to them as fast as possible. (laughs) And I've talked to a couple of my girlfriends who've gotten divorced And they say the exact same thing happens to them. Seriously? Where you can feel the person kind of asking around, Uh like snooping just enough. And it's not for your sake. It's for them. It's so that they can identify some critical difference between you and them that makes them feel like they can exhale again. Yeah. Like, oh, well, we definitely still have sex. So we're definitely not going to get a divorce. Or, you know, oh, my husband doesn't travel, so that then we're definitely not going to get a divorce. Or, you know, I never smoked cigarettes, so I'm definitely not going to get breast cancer. And, yeah. And they, they're poking for that critical difference to hold on to. Yeah. And I, I want to hug them and say, like, I know, I'm so sorry, you're not going to like any of my answers. I don't have the genetic predisposition. It's not in my family. It's completely random. Yeah. In other words, it could happen to you tomorrow. Totally. Like, that's not a headline anybody wants to read. There's this other phrase, I was wrong, that has real power. And you learned that in a really intense way when your grandma died. I was wondering if you could tell me about that. so terrible. So, you know, it's funny that that phrase really begat the whole book in a way. Hmm. Because I had been feeling this shame about not, you know, really earning my days here. And then Edward and I were at dinner and we were talking about the difference between saying I'm sorry and saying I was wrong. And I was saying, God, it's so much more powerful, though. I mean, the humility in saying I was wrong, Mm. it's like a game changer. It just ends the tension. Because what you're saying is I see it how you see it. Yeah. And I agree with you. I was wrong. And that is very soothing. But then that took me back to this moment where I I had gone to work for United Way after college, because I was going to save the world, and I was this total do-gooder, and oh. I was perhaps proud about it, honestly. Yeah. And I was reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People at Night with my big fat yellow highlighter, and <laughs> I was really like full of attachment to this identity that I had painted for myself. And I was also living only maybe 10 miles from my very old grandma, who lived alone. And I... I kept kind of meaning to go visit her. Yeah. But it's a lot easier to show up at work every day at the United Way and get kind of righteous about 
all the people who work for money versus the rest of us who are working for the greater good <laughs> than it is to go to your grandma's like smelly, weird apartment totally, and have weird conversations with an 88-year-old, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't engage with her. I didn't make her final days one bit better. Mm. And I lived there for two years. I went to see her one time. Yeah. And then she died. And my dad called. And my dad had nothing but positive things to say to me my entire life. And he said, you should have gone to see your grandmother more. She died this morning. And I, oh, it's just sick to my stomach. I went into this tiny bathroom in Baltimore in our office building and just cried my eyes out. And it wasn't even because she died. It was because I had been selfish and my dad caught me. You know, that I had like lost his favor for a moment. And I, oh, I was just so ashamed. And then I wanted to get right with him and urgently. I was like in a big, big rush to get in front of him and say my apology and be returned to a state of grace. But the fact is that his mom died. Yeah. And it wasn't my turn for his attention. Like he had things to do for days and days and days and eulogies to write, and people to hug, and people to thank, and accounts to close, and cars to sell, and, you know, he he had work to do, both emotional and just literally logistics. Yeah. yeah. So I had to wait. And then finally, we had a window, and I said I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong not to go visit her. I was wrong not to try to know her. And I could just see it in his face that it was like, okay. Like, you understand. Mm. You understand what you did wrong. So to me, that felt very different than saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't go see your mom. Yeah. Like, that's not the same as saying I was wrong not to not to try to know her. I was wrong not to try to ease her, ease her days in some way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I honestly think I only say I'm sorry and not I was wrong. I think I might try well, it. Well, chop, chop, kid. I don't, chop, chop. <laughs> I don't think I'll like it, but I will think of you <laughs> when I do it. <laughs> you also realized there was incredible parenting magic in the phrase, tell me more. So mm. what is this witchcraft you speak of? I'm telling you what, man. You cannot believe how much I use this. <laughs> and, and you cannot believe how still it is not my natural instinct. Huh. Like it's a very learned thing that I have to insert the words into my mouth and push them out deliberately. <laughs> because my instinct is to solve. Yeah. My instinct is to fix. Because I feel I'm like almost sure I can. Oh, totally. Like almost every time. Yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. sure that if you just let me take over, I can make this problem go away. Yeah. I believe you. And that's the truth. That's like total vanity. But I really, especially with the kids, I definitely think, Edward and I both think, if you let us run this out for you, we'll get it done like one, two, three. (laughs) And that's so humiliating and degrading and like just the opposite of self-esteem building, which is, you know, sort of like the ground we walk on as adults. (laughs) The magic of tell me more is you start telling me what you're upset about. Yeah. And I fall for the first thing you say, and I start solving for that. Yeah. But the fact is, if I said, tell me more, go on, what else? You'd say the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it would be like the thing behind the thing behind the thing Yeah. is where the, really the pain is. Yeah. And if I'd waited way longer, I would have been able to say, oh, I understand. Yeah. You're feeling like, you know, ABC, not DEF. Mm-hmm. 
So that's the beauty of it. You might actually give somebody a chance to like discover what's really bothering them. Yeah. And in that discovery, they might find their own solution. But the fact is that if you can bite your stupid tongue (laughs) and get over yourself and just keep eliciting the whole story. Yeah. Then the next thing you know, their mood is changing and they're feeling more solution oriented. And then they get the buzz of solving the problem. Yeah. But, you know, if I'm jumping in with my fancy solution like two and a half minutes in, I just cut you off. And, and then and then we leave each other. And I have this little high like, oh, I just really helped her. And she walks away thinking she didn't hear anything I said. She yeah. totally doesn't get it. Yeah. We're jumping in way too soon and talking way too much. Like, I think... We should be talking about 5% of the time. You and I are super chatty people, but you make an amazing pitch for silence. And I am all for it. Because everyone always had these go-to things to say with me, like, you can do it, or you're so brave, and all the things that made me feel like I was on the other side of plexiglass. So I was wondering, would you mind reading that beautiful passage you wrote about after Liz died? You wrote about the end of words. So this was about all these people calling me to say, I heard your friend died, I heard your friend died, and not, I just couldn't bear to call them back. Yeah. Surely my friend, my lost and lovely friend, called for new words. For a while I'd say she'd been robbed or ripped off. After the potency of the crime metaphor wore off, I turned to the vocabulary of religion. It's a sin. It's hell. Then the ocean with its waves so vast impossible to touch bottom, then a maze, then a mountain, then seasons, a natural disaster. I never came up with any combination that came close to the feeling. Despair defies description. Mm. Ask the dancers and the athletes, the painters and musicians. Ask anyone who has participated in a moment of silence. The reach of language can be laughable. Mm. You put in a strong argument, if I may say it like that, for just being close to one another. Hmm. Just you describe it as I love like, that. Po- have you ever heard that potted plant theory? No. My, f- my friend Andy Lotz, who's Liz's husband, um, told me about it because he's a mom now. <laughs> and so we talk mom talk. And hmm. he, the potted plant theory, I don't, I can't credit it to someone. I'm sorry. I don't know who, who put it out there. But the idea is that, you know, if you were to have a, a plant in your kitchen, you you might not be aware of it at all. And then if someone were to remove it, you'd say, what happened to that plant? Yeah. And he said, that's a way to be a parent, which is to say to be there, to be available, to be within view. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily inserting yourself. Yeah. Because... Even though as your kids get older and older, it feels like they're looking for you less and less, it is sort of a comfort to glance over and see you there and feel you there. And they would most certainly notice if you weren't. Yeah. You say something uh, that it's so weird because I say it all the time. So when I read it, I thought, did you reach inside my brain? You adopted the phrase onward as a bit of a motto. I absolutely love that phrase. I even use it at the end of lectures, like, uh, hey, this is the end of the 19th century, onwards. But 
you use it so beautifully when you're talking about Liz's family and how they are now. Well, you know, it's so funny. Uh, it was the very last thing that I wrote. You know, there's all you may be able to relate to this. There's always one part of a book that writes itself, at least mm. for me, where it's like that. I guess I've been thinking about this long enough. I guess I've been living this long enough that it's yeah. all kind of been subconsciously forming. And now I'm I'm just about taking dictation here. Yeah. And that's the way that was. I sat at my dining room table, which is a place I never write. And I thought, oh, my God, of course, I know exactly what this is. This is me writing a letter to Liz. And I and and I wrote the whole thing and I cried my eyes out the whole time I was writing it and wiping my nose and blowing my nose and get sitting back down and Edward's like, You're all right? And I'm like, I'm all right. This is the way this has to be. And and it's right there. It's just it's just came out whole and uh and it of course to me it's the most important and moving uh chapter in the book for sure. Well, the the quote that uh, really resonated with me is when you said, they are moving onward, not away from you, but with you. You are mm-hmm. everywhere they are. I really believe that. Even though I, you know, I'm like skeptical and I'm mad at people who say like her spirit's still here and stuff. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. But I'm just telling you that those kids are waking up every day without her. Yeah. And they're going to keep being without her forever. She's not going to their wedding. She's not going to pick out wedding dresses for them. She's not going to hold their babies. Like, yeah. So I get it. But I do, I, I, I spend a lot of time with them. And uh, and I'm madly in love with them. Really, really have this deep, incredible connection with them that I, I just value so much. And they are in her. And, you know, they're everything that, that she was so important to her. Like she was really, really into manners. <laughs> she's and and as a, as kind of an act of gratitude, not in an yeah. uptight British way, yeah. but as a like, you know, look at us, like eating a meal together. Like let's not nobody should eat before the last person gets down. We should thank the chef. We should hold hands for a moment. Like yeah. as a way of marking the the glory of a family <laughs> dinner. <laughs> and they do that. I mean, that, they're never going to not do that. And that's how they're going to raise their kids. And that means she's still here. Yeah. I mean, that means she's with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of belonging is transcendent. And you just feel it pop up in these little moments. I think part of why your book is so moving is the way that these sayings crystallize these really big truths about who we are and also how we should love each other. It, it kind of reminded me, though, when I was little, my family used to have these mottos. But the mottos were mm. stuff like, uh, don't get crumbs on the baby or be nice to <laughs> <laughs> my little sister. Or like, be nice to mom. And I think that's because we were always sort of fighting nearby. Um, oh, God, but, don't get crumbs on the baby. There's a, there's a title. I mean, I don't know why you went with everything happens for a reason because... <laughs> Don't get crumbs on the baby. That could be the follow-up. I don't know. <laughs> well, the one that we sort of settled on most was uh, don't let the turkeys get you down because we were all deeply unpopular children. Uh-huh. Um, but it did make me think about mottos and how it sort of defines the season that we live in. So I kind of wondered if there was a motto you'd pick for you for right now, what would it be? A uh, One that I've always liked is things happen when you leave the house. <laughs> I think I like this sense of like 
there's something out there that you can tap into. You don't have to be, yeah. you don't have to bring it all. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a whole world out there happening and you can step into all kinds of things and, and you don't need to know why you're leaving the house. Like, you know, you don't always need such a plan or an agenda or whatever. Like just get in the mix, get in yeah. the line of fire. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like just keep saying yes. Mm. You know, like when in doubt, say, sure, I'll do that. Yeah. Just to see what happens next. Yeah. Just to see who you might meet. And the idea that like any day could be like this huge day, <laughs> that is really, I don't know, that really gets me out of bed. Yeah. You know, like today could be this day. Like, t- well, you know, today I met you. Now we're friends. Like, <laughs> we are, now, though. <laughs> and, then, and who knows what's going to happen yeah. now. Like now maybe I'm going to go to Durham and yeah. now maybe I'm going to get my PhD in divinity. I don't know. But like a whole new world of possibilities exist right now that did not exist an hour and 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And I think that is like so cool and real and exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think things happen when you leave the house. You could do worse than oh. to live by that one. Absolutely. I love that it gives up perfectionism and it just says like, hey, what's possible today? Yeah, go get mixed up in something. <laughs> go see who you can bump into out there. You are someone who's gotten mixed up in all kinds of things and I am so glad to know you. I know me too. I can't. I mean, I'm totally coming to see you. Well, I accept. Yeah. Thanks so okay, much great. for doing this. I really appreciate sure, it. Sure, my I'll, pleasure. I guess I'll see you soon. Yeah, stay healthy. I'm coming. <laughs> Words matter. The words we speak and the words spoken over us. Even the words left unsaid. One of the hardest things I've been wrestling with is not having any clear language for this weird place between sick and healthy, weak and strong. The ambiguity is quite isolating. Sometimes we're just lacking a bit of language. Those ordinary consonants and vowels that, when strung together, offer meaning and points of entry for others. So maybe when life is chronic, we all need some sayings to anchor us, our very own mottos that guide us through. Maybe you want to borrow one of Kelly's, like, it's like this. But you're totally welcome to borrow my family's motto, don't let the turkeys get you down. It's tried and true. Onward, my dears. I've been singing these lines from a song by the Avett Brothers to my kids for years, and it goes like this. Just do your best. It's the only way to keep that last bit of sanity. Maybe I don't have to be good, but I can try to be least a little better than I've been so far. Our family motto is Allah Kareem. We were living in Damascus, Syria, and whenever one of us asked for something mom and dad couldn't afford, dad would say Allah Kareem. In Arabic, Allah means God. Kareem means generous. So God is generous was my dad's way of promising us a better future. So I grew up with this uh, sentence with uh, my father's voice in my head saying, Allah Kareem, God is generous. Our family motto is don't eat a hamster. We had several hamsters in one cage and they can be cannibalistic. And one morning a hamster was missing and another hamster had a suspiciously large tummy. I was so mad that I shook the cage a bit. Bad hamster eating its sibling. Weeks later the missing hamster crawled out from under the stove. 
So don't eat a hamster is our version of don't jump to conclusions. Today's episode is brought to you by our partners, North Carolina Public Radio WUNC, the Lilly Endowment, the Issachar Fund, the John Templeton Foundation, Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource, and Duke Divinity School. And of course, Beverly Abel, Jessica Ritchie, and Be the Change Revolutions make the magic happen. I need to hear what your motto is. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler, and I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens.